The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf with another podcast. We welcome as our guest today Dom Prosper Guéranger, who died in 1875. Since the liturgical years drawing to a close, Dom Guéranger will teach us about the beautiful and mysterious liturgical year. Then I'll speak a bit about the last Sunday of the liturgical year and a wonderful custom which can even teach us something about our own liturgical participation. Dom Prosper Louis Pascal Guéranger died in 1875. He was abbot of Solemn in France and the author of The Liturgical Year, a work in 15 volumes covering every day of the church's liturgical cycle in what we now call the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite. He was a key figure in the revival of Benedictine monasticism, and he was a forerunner of the 20th century's liturgical movement. Now, since we are on the threshold of a new liturgical year, and also drawing close to hearing our liturgical year differently through a new corrected translation, let us hear some words from Dom Guéranger about the meaning of the liturgical year and how God works through it. What I'm going to read is an excerpt with some editing from the general preface to Guéranger's great work, The Liturgical Year. And as I read, here are a few things to tune your ear to. See if you can catch them. For example, uh, you will hear how Guéranger speaks uh, in a hierarchical order all the time. He moves from God, the Trinity, down through the angelic order and then down to the saints. But he always highlights the place of the Mother of God. Uh, he speaks also with the language of fertility and of pregnancy, uh, of giving life and bearing fruit. You will even hear in his uh, descriptions an image of the spices, uh, which is an echo of the Song of Songs. Of course, it's also an echo of incense, isn't it? The incense we use in liturgy. But this is really a reference to the Song of Songs. And you will remember that this, in the Song of Songs, the lover is calling to his beloved. Guéranger, of course, is indicating that in our liturgical participation, there is a mystical union that takes place between God and creation and Christ in his church, and, of course, with our souls. You'll hear Guéranger uh, use this pair, uh, this pairing. You'll hear him talking about what God does for the church and then what God does for the soul, and he groups these usually together, those two. Toward the end of this uh, section I'll read, he also speaks about types, types, characters impressed on the soul. Think of movable type, the stamp of movable type, the impression it makes on a paper, like an old-fashioned typewriter, none of our fancy uh, laser printers or inkjet printers that just, you know, sprays on or adheres a little bit of something to the paper itself. Think in the days of the actual impression the type made directly into the paper when it was stamped with a character. 
Um, of course, what this does is it leaves the mark that the writer desires to communicate to other people and it impresses it directly on into the, the medium itself. Well, in a similar way, all of the types that we experience are meant to be impressed into us so that they become part of us. Uh, if you think of uh, typology, typology, a typological interpretation of writings, such as uh, how, uh, for example, fathers of the church would approach scripture. The idea by a typological interpretation of scripture is that in scripture and in, through all salvation history, God left marks along the way, which pointed to other realities, which we can read and, and now recognize in the signs that were left. So events and symbols and so forth throughout history were pointing to something that was to come. Uh, in this typological approach, for example, we see that uh, Isaac and Abraham in Genesis were types of Christ. The sacrifice is a type of what the Lord would do on Calvary. So you have the victim with the priest going up the hill with the wood for the sacrifice. And what is eventually sacrificed there is a ram. That's in Genesis. But this was a foreshadowing of the true priest victim, in this case in one person, not in two, going up Golgotha with the wood of the cross, the lamb to be slain. That's a typological approach to Isaac and Abraham. So in the liturgy, Garanje is suggesting that what we are ex experiencing are types, things that link everything that went through past, all of salvation history and the mysteries of the Lord, which he uh, so eloquently describes to us, with our present, what's happening with us right now, and how we are being changed by them. And then he's always pointing uh, them past who we are now toward the heavenly liturgy before the throne of God. So that's what he's doing with that whole language about types. But without any other delays, let's hear an excerpt from uh, the general preface Dom Prosper Guéranger gives to his titanic work, The Liturgical Year. It is Jesus Christ himself who is the source as well as the object of the liturgy, and hence the ecclesiastical year is neither more nor less than the manifestation of Jesus Christ and his mysteries in the church and in the faithful soul. It is the divine cycle in which appear all the works of God, each in its turn. The seven days of the creation, the Pasch and Pentecost of the Jewish people, the ineffable visit of the incarnate word, his sacrifice and his victory, the descent of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Eucharist, the surpassing glories of the Mother of God ever a virgin, the magnificence of the angels, the merits and triumphs of the saints. 
Thus the cycle of the church may be said to have its beginning under the patriarchal law, its progress under the written law, and its completion under the law of love, in which at length, having attained its last perfection, it will disappear in eternity, as the written law gave way the day on which the invincible power of the blood of the Lamb rent asunder the veil of the temple. Would that we might worthily describe the sacred wonders of this mystical calendar, of which all others are but images and humble auxiliaries, Happy indeed should we deem ourselves if we could make the faithful understand the grand glory which is given to the blessed Trinity, to our Savior, to Mary, to the angels, and to the saints, by this annual commemoration of the wondrous works of our God. If, every year, the Church renews her youth as that of the eagle, she does so because, by means of the cycle of the liturgy, she is visited by her divine spouse, who supplies all her wants. Each year she again sees him as an infant in the manger, fasting in the desert, offering himself on the cross, rising from the grave, founding his church, instituting the sacraments, ascending to the right hand of his Father, and sending the Holy Ghost upon men. The graces of all these divine mysteries are renewed in her, so that, being made fruitful in every good thing, the mystic garden yields to the spouse in every season, under the influence of the Spirit he breathes into her the sweet perfume of aromatic spices. Each year the Spirit of God retakes possession of his well-beloved and gives her light and love. Each year she derives an increase of life, from the maternal influence which the Blessed Virgin exercises over her on the feasts of her joys, her dolors, and her glories, and lastly, the brilliant constellation formed by the successive appearance of the nine choirs of the angels, and of the saints in their varied orders of apostles, martyrs, confessors, and virgins, sheds on her each year powerful help and abundant consolation. The year thus planned for us by the Church herself produces the drama, the sublimest that has ever been offered, to the admiration of man. God intervening for the salvation and sanctification of men, the reconciliation of justice with mercy, the humiliations, the sufferings, and the glories of the God-man, the coming of the Holy Ghost and his workings in humanity and in the faithful soul, the mission and the action of the church, all are there portrayed in the most telling and impressive way. Each mystery has its time and place by means of the sublime succession of the respective anniversaries. A divine face happened 1900 years ago. Its anniversary is kept in the liturgy, and its impression is thus reiterated every year in the minds of the faithful with a freshness as though god were then doing for the first time what he did so many ages past human ingenuity could never have devised a system of such power as this and those writers who are bold and frivolous enough to assert that christianity no longer has an influence in the world 
and is now but the ruin of an ancient thing. What would they say at seeing these undying realities, this vigor, this endlessness of the liturgical year? For what is the liturgy but an untiring affirmation of the works of God, a solemn acknowledgment of those divine facts which, though done but once, are imperishable in man's remembrance, and are every year renewed by the commemoration he makes of them? Have we not our writings of the apostolic age, our acts of the martyrs, our decrees of ancient councils, our writings of the fathers, our monuments, taking us to the very origin of Christianity and testifying to the most explicit tradition regarding our feasts? It is true that the liturgical cycle has its integrity and its development nowhere but in the Catholic Church, but the sects which are separated from her whether by schism or by heresy, all pay the homage of their testimony to the divine origin of the liturgy by the pertinacity with which they cling to the remnants they have preserved, remnants, by the way, to which they owe whatever vitality they still retain. But though the liturgy so deeply impresses us by annually bringing before us the dramatic solemnization of those mysteries which have been accomplished for the salvation of man and for his union with his God, it is nevertheless wonderful how the succession of year after year diminishes not one atom of the freshness and vehemence of those impressions and each new beginning of the cycle of mystic seasons seems to be our first year. Advent is ever impregnated with the spirit of a sweet and mysterious expectation. Christmas ever charms us with the incomparable joy of the birth of the divine child. We enter with a well-known feeling into the gloom of Septuagesima, Lent comes, and we prostrate ourselves before God's justice, and our heart is filled with a salutary fear and compunction, which seem so much keener than they were the year before. The passion of our Redeemer, followed in every minutest detail, does it not seem as though we never knew it till this year? The pageant of Easter makes us so glad that our former Easters appear to have been only half-kept, the triumphant ascension discloses to us upon the whole economy of the incarnation secrets which we never knew before this year when the holy ghost comes down at pentecost is it not the case that we so thrill with the renewal of the great presence that our emotions of last whit sunday seem too tame for this However habituated we get to the ineffable gift which Jesus made us on the eve of his passion, the bright dear feast of Corpus Christi brings us a strange increase of love to our heart, and the blessed sacrament seems more our own than ever. The feasts of our blessed lady come round each time revealing something more of her greatness, and the saints with whom we fancied we had become so thoroughly acquainted each year as they visit us seem so much greater. We understand them better. We feel more sensibly the link there is between them and ourselves. This renovative power of the liturgical year, to which we wish to draw the attention of our readers, 
is a mystery of the Holy Ghost, who unceasingly animates the work which he has inspired the church to establish among men, that thus they might sanctify that time which has been given to them for the worship of their Creator. The renovation works also a twofold growth in the mind of man, the increase of knowledge of the truths of faith, and the development of the supernatural life. There is not a single point of Christian doctrine which, in the course of the liturgical year, is not brought forward, nay, is not inculcated with that authority and unction wherewith our Holy Mother the Church has so deeply impregnated her words and her eloquent rites. The faith of the believer is thus enlightened more and more each year. The theological sensus is formed in him. Prayer leads him to science. Mysteries continue to be mysteries, but their brightness becomes so vivid that the mind and heart are enchanted, and we begin to imagine what a joy the eternal sight of these divine beauties will produce in us when the glimpse of them through the clouds is such a charm to us. Yes, there must needs be a great progress in a Christian soul, when the object of her faith is ever gaining greater light, when the hope of her salvation is almost forced upon her by the sight of all those wonders which God's goodness has wrought for his creatures, and when charity is enkindled within her under the breath of the Holy Ghost, who has made the liturgy to be the center of his working in men's souls. Is not the formation of Christ within us the result of our uniting in his various mysteries, the joyful, the sorrowful, and the glorious? These mysteries of Jesus come into us and are incorporated into us each year by the power of the special grace which the liturgy produces by communicating them to us. And the new man gradually grows up even on the ruins of the old. Then again, in order that the divine type may the more easily be stamped upon us, we need examples. We want to see how our fellow men have realized that type in themselves, and the liturgy fulfills this need for us by offering us the practical teaching and the encouragement of our dear saints, who shine like stars in the firmament of the ecclesiastical year. By looking upon them, we come to learn the way which leads to Jesus, just as Jesus is our way which leads to the Father. But above all the saints, and brighter than them all, we have Mary, showing us in her single person the mirror of justice, in which is reflected all the sanctity possible in a pure creature. That was an excerpt with some edits from the general uh, introduction of Prosper Guéranger to his great work, The Liturgical Year.
And I'd like to return just uh, to that issue of type, because I hadn't ranted enough about it. Uh, type, typos in Greek, a figure or a mark. In the liturgy, God is impressing upon us mysterious signs and characters, things that have to leave their mark. Uh, sometimes we talk about the, the character impressed upon us by baptism. It changes us in our soul. Uh, confirmation changes us in our soul. Ordination changes the man who receives it in his very soul. It leaves a mark on him, a sign that can never go away, something that we call an indelible mark. But really in everything that God does, through our liturgical worship, leaves a mark on us. Uh, there are signs and symbols and mysteries that we encounter in them all through the sacred liturgy in every word and in every gesture. And just as a printed page receives a mark which is supposed to convey something of the mind of the author, those signs then have to be read by other people. So we, who participate in liturgical worship, receiving these mysterious signs and marks all through us, we have to come to reflect in our manner and in our bearing and in our words the things that have been impressed on us through our encounter with the mysterious author of our worship. God is the true author of all that is said and done in Holy Mass, Christ is the true actor, and we are being surrounded, wreathed in by mystery, things which should leave a mark on us, almost as if, like Moses, when he would go into the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would go in to converse with God, when he came back out, he was so, his face was so bright that he had to wear a veil in front of it. This is how we need to be transformed in our liturgical participation, in our active participation. Our active participation should be grounded, first of all, in our receptivity to everything that God is offering us in word and in gesture, in the sacred action of which he is the true author, mediated to us through Holy Church. As I speak, it's the last Sunday of the liturgical year, and in the traditional Roman calendar that we call now the extraordinary form, we always use the texts from the 24th and last Sunday of the year, the last 24th Sunday after Pentecost, even though there may not have been 24 Sundays after Pentecost because of, you know, when we calculated uh, Easter, when Easter fell. So, 
It's always the 24th Sunday on the last Sunday of the year, even when it isn't. But the first prayer of the Mass for the last Sunday of the year, the Collect, uh, gives us the nickname for this Sunday. We call this Sunday sometimes Stir Up Sunday because of the first words of the Collect. Stir Up Sunday uh, also became the day when families in England would stir up the ingredients for their Christmas puddings. So that it, having been made today before Advent even begins, they could put it aside and they could season and get a little age before then it was brought out on Christmas to be consumed. Uh, let's hear the collect that gives the nickname to Stir Up Sunday. So first, of course, we have to hear it in Latin, and then we'll hear it in a version that I worked up. Uh, not absolutely literal, but pretty literal and you know, smoothed out just a little bit. Excita quesibus domine tuorum fidelium voluntatis, ut divini operis fructum propensius exequentes, pietatis tue remedia maiora percipiant. It's an ancient prayer. It's found in the 8th century Gelasian sacramentary, and it survived for the ordinary form as the collect, the first prayer for the Masses uh, during the 34th week of ordinary time, that is the weekdays after uh, Christ the King and up to the first Sunday of Advent. And so the prayer has stayed roughly in the same place that it has occupied uh, for all these centuries. Now here's a smoother translation of this. Stir up the will of your faithful, we pray, O Lord, that seeking more eagerly the fruit of your divine work, they may find in greater measure the healing effects of your mercy. That's my version. Of course, there's a brand new uh, version of it. The new corrected version is out, but I think well, just you know, one, one version at a time is enough. But anyway, you can hear how this prayer gave its nickname to the Sunday. Stir up the will of your faithful. Excita quesimus domine tuorum fidelium voluntates. Now, Last year, I made a Christmas pudding for the first time, and I presented it as a dessert for a literary group I belong to. We get together, usually once a month, so roughly, and read poetry together. We'll focus on one author for quite a while, and read his works aloud and then comment on them, and then afterwards we have a big meal together. And uh, the Christmas pudding, the making of the Christmas pudding last year for me was a real eye-opener. Uh, it it brought something out of theory and into actual uh, practical knowledge for me. And that's the, the benefits of slow cooking, really slow, careful, patient cooking, and opening up a whole world uh, and a whole palette of, of tastes and smells through the use of somewhat obsolete ingredients and old cooking techniques, and the results were remarkable. They were eye-opening for me because this the the slow cooking and old cooking old ingredients produce something far more rewarding than the slapdash way we tend to eat today. Uh, the same might be said by analogy for our liturgical experiences, but I digress. In any event, uh, since sometimes I read poetry in these podcasts, 
and thinking about this collect and thinking about the pudding made me stir up a little poem by Elizabeth Turner about a Christmas pudding and here it is now little Sophie come with me to make a pudding you shall see now sit quite still and see me do it see here's the flour and the suet the suet must be chopped quite small for it should scarce be seen at all a pound of each will nicely suit to which I put two pounds of fruit one is of currants one of plums you'll find it good when boiled it comes then almonds sugar citron spice and peel will make it very nice now see me stir and mix it well and then we'll leave the rest to Nell now see the pudding cloth she flowers ties it and boils it full five hours well my pudding I boiled more than five hours I boiled mine for eight hours but the point is is that it is patient work and it's many different ingredients many different precious things that you might not see all year long things that were maybe hard to come by and things that were maybe a little more expensive than you'd often have and so it would be assembled into one great crescendo of boiling and then lighting on fire and then eating with celebration and of course with other people With that, I'll wrap up this podcast, just like a nice Christmas pudding. Please come and visit at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? Or you can look it up at fatherzonline.com. That's F-A-T-H-E-R-Z-Online.com. Please pray for me as I will for you. <laughs>